You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hi, everyone. Welcome to CRST, the podcast. I'm Dr. Nandini Venkateswaran. I'm a cataract cornea and refractive surgery specialist in Boston, Massachusetts. And today we're taking a deeper dive into CRST's recent issue, which was entitled Cornea Conscious Surgery. And this issue really focuses on the cornea's pivotal role in cataract surgery. I had the privilege of serving as the guest medical editor for the issue, and I'm thrilled to be joined by two of its exceptional contributors to continue the conversation. I'm here with... Hi, guys. It's Joaquin DeRojas here from Sarasota, Florida. Thank you, Nandini, for inviting me on. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about my experience with everything. I know I'll be learning a lot from you two guys. And I'm Mina Farahani. I'm joining from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a cornea specialist at Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. Uh, looking forward to to learning more from you and to uh, discussing optimizing the cornea. It's great to have you guys. And I think we'll delve into each of your articles into a little bit more detail and get some insights. Um, Dr. De Rojas is going to be discussing the importance of adopting a refractive mindset when approaching cataract surgery, especially when we think about those patients with irregular corneas. And Dr. Farhani will share some great insights into optimizing the ocular surface for our cataract surgery patients and really emphasize why it's important to think about dry eye disease in this patient population. So let's jump right in. Joaquin, I loved your article. And I think in this day and age of cataract surgery, having a refractive mindset is so important. I think our patients' needs and demands are just constantly increasing and as they should. So as as a cataract surgeon, how have you started to adopt that refractive mindset when you see your cataract surgery patients? And how has it affected your patient outcomes? What I had the privilege of writing down in this article is really what's going on in all of our minds these days uh, as, as cataract surgeons is we are refractive cataract surgeons. It's really nothing unique to what I'm contributing other than um, I think it's, it's nice to explicitly think about the mental shift that has occurred in the field of cornea surgery um, and cornea care, where you're really now thinking about refractive outcomes, where maybe that wasn't as true in the past when, when the real uh, outcome was sort of the health of, of the eye, let's say. So now we're really thinking about the refractive outcome. And why is that important? I kind of always go back to, because really it's, it's what our patients want, you know, and when, when our patients come to us, they want to see better and they want to have freedom in their life. Um, sometimes that means freedom without glasses and just better functional vision. And that's really what refractive surgery is all about. So when I think of a patient, um, I'm always thinking in the refractive mindset because I'm always thinking about how do I improve their function? How do I improve their life? Uh, and how do I make, make it easier for them? So, uh, I think that you can always have a refractive mindset, uh, you know, you have to take care of the disease, you have to take care of everything else. But, but I think if you want to take it to the next level with your patients, you have to have that refractive mindset, because ultimately, that's what's going to make you successful and your patients happier. Absolutely. And then, you know, we're all cornea specialists here. And these are some tough cases, right? They come to us, they've been referred, they may have pathology, and others may say, listen, your only option is a monofocal lens. And we're not sure what the outcome will be, but we'll try to get you seeing clearer and then we'll get you glasses or contacts. And I think that's reasonable for some patients, but how do you now navigate that conversation? We've had this influx of technology. So 
when you see this irregular cornea patient, what's going through your mind and how do you help perhaps give them a refractive outcome? Yeah. So I, I think you have to take every case, um, case by case, because it's, it's really a tailored approach that I try to pursue, uh, considering sort of that patients where they're coming from, uh, what is the condition of their ocular surface? What is the condition of their cornea and the rest of their optical system all the way, really, how does the light go all the way to their retina? And you're considering that whole, um, that whole kind of segue of, of, of light. And, and I think that, um, you know, that's, that's really step one is to try to understand what is the patient's condition. And then also what is the patient step two is what does the patient really want? Um, so if I determine that, you know, they have some pathology, whether that's, let's say severe ocular surface disease, maybe accompanied by rheumatologic disease, or maybe it's exposure keratopathy. There's a whole host of issues that, you know, some of which I talk about, um, but you determine it and you, and you ask yourself, um, can I improve the condition to make, to, to increase the candidacy uh, of these, you know, for these technologies? So that's always kind of what I'm thinking. Um, and especially if that's what the patient wants. So first I determine if it's possible. Okay. And if, if I can optimize the situation, I try to do that first. And, uh, if I can't optimize the situation, then you have to really take a deep dive and, and look, you know, look at both, uh, I would say your exam findings, which are more kind of qualitative, but also look at some more kind of quantitative data from things like the Pentacam, from things like, um, arc scan, there's, there's all these different um, wafer barometers now and autorefractors, all sorts of different tools that you can use to try to quantify sort of the visual quality that you might get at the surgery. And, you know, once you determine these things, you kind of start thinking about what the patient wants and you think about the tools that you have and you try to match it uh, to the patient. It's always kind of a, I kind of think of it as like, you have to have a proper level of confidence in the technology, but you also have to, and in yourself to be able to deliver the outcome to this patient, but you also can't be overconfident and, you know, promise the patient the world. Uh, Cause that, that's kind of a, a recipe for, um, you know, misunderstanding and, and, and an outcome that you're not proud of. So you have to have that, that right balance where, where you're really confident you can get the patient there, but kind of over uh, under promise and over deliver. I think that's so important, really expectation setting in, in this patient population. You know, I'm sure we have many listeners here who may want to start to offer, you know, different technologies for patients with, you know, more compromised corneas. Mina, what do you think are some of the tools or the key tools that we may need in a practice to start doing that? You know, what are some of the, the, the key equipment or key testing that you really rely upon when you're stratifying patients? Well, just like what Joaquin said, we really have to look at the entire optical system from the front to the back. So, you know, we need uh, corneal imaging. We need to look for higher order aberrations. Um, I always get an OCT of the macula for all cataract consults because there may be some subtle maculopathy that we may miss with just a, a dilated exam. And so I include that as part of my workup for, for every cataract who's coming in, whether it's a patient who's considering you know, a more premium lens implant versus just a monofocal. I want to make sure that there are no surprises on the, uh, in the post-op period. And so having a way to view the cornea, whether it's the Pentacam or 
whichever way you're going to measure your Ks in a few different ways, looking for inconsistencies along the way, um, and getting your IOL calcs, and I would definitely add an OCT of the macula. Um, I think that that's really the basics. Um, that coupled with a very careful slit lamp exam. And as I get into in my article, uh, we have to really look for keratopathy, look for corneal abnormalities like ABMD that could cause or induce irregular astigmatism that may need to be addressed with a superficial keratectomy to optimize the surgical outcome. If we miss these things on the front end, we can have post-refractive surprises uh, on on the back end. And the patient may think that you gave them a new problem instead of missing something that was there all along. Uh, And so I think that just a very thorough workup from front of the eye to back of the eye uh, to be able to set realistic expectations is so, so important. Absolutely. I mean, I rely on my topography and tomography for almost every patient. So having that information in conjunction with biometry and and sometimes even aberometry with some of our more advanced technologies can be great. So, and just like, just something to add, I'm sure we all do this, right? It's, uh, don't be afraid to order tests, even if you can't bill for them, you know, because it's sometimes it's, it's what insurance says we should bill for is not necessarily what's going to be most optimal or that we can bill for, right? Because we do, like you said, the OCT max, you may not find anything back there half the time, but um, you're going to be happy when you do. And obviously, even if you do, you can't bill for it if it's a screening test. So, but it's still worth it. It's because it's the right thing to do for the patient. So you want to establish a system in your clinics where you can have these patients as efficiently as possible get this testing that you need. And like Mina said too, um, you know, I agree with her hundred percent about the slit length exam because you can also, let's not forget, you don't need all the fancy testing all the time because a lot of things you can figure out just with, with a good slit length exam. And I do believe that to be true. But I think pictures speak a thousand words. You know, there's many times I get a topography tomography and I'll see areas of flattening or steepening and I'm like, that's interesting. And then I'll go directly to that part of the cornea on my exam and you'll find, you know, subtle anterior basement membrane dystrophy or a Salzman's nodule hidden under the upper eyelid that others have missed. And these things can induce a lot of irregular astigmatism. So optimizing the surface and trying to get better keratometry values can be you know, so important for the patient's outcome because that may change their candidacy for certain types of lens technologies. Um, I saw that in my clinic today. So I feel like really using your imaging and showing your patient what it is that you're noticing can really help them understand why sometimes it's not just a one and done, like let's do cataract surgery next week. We may need to think about doing this in a more stepwise approach. And I, you know, they're more receptive to that. I find. Yeah, those are such gratifying cases for me when I pick up a lot of irregular astigmatism and they may read okay on the chart. You know, it's probably a really lousy quality 2040 or 2030. Uh, and you get that pre-op uh, topography picture and I walk them through the picture. I, I pull up that first image and I explained it. It's like a land map, you know, blue is flat like water green is like land. And look, you have this yellow hill and, and this red mountain on your cornea and it should all be one even color. And I show them that picture to explain the concept of irregular astigmatism, how there's every color of the rainbow in their central cornea and it, it shouldn't be that way. And they get it. And then when I do a procedure and repeat that picture uh, in the post-op period, I usually get another one at month one after a a keratectomy. Um, They see that difference instantly. And it's really, you know, it's gratifying for for both of us to know that, okay, you had these lumps and bumps, 
they're gone. Now we can move on and, and possibly address your cataract if it's significant too, you know, and you'll do better because we dealt with this first. So I think education is patient education is just so important uh, for, uh, for these patients where you may have to delay their surgery. They need to know why and that you're doing it for basically to meet their, their vision goals ultimately. It's so gratifying too, when you either treat like their ocular surface or you do a SK, like you said, and, and you get their vision better even before cataract surgery. That's always fun because then they're, they're already, oh, I'm already seeing better. And then we kind of can take them to the next level. And, exactly. You know, so, uh, and then on the flip side, there's nothing worse than, <laughs> you know, doing the surgery and then you, uh, you see these issues afterwards and then you have to try to explain to them that they have issues that, um, you know, whether you did the surgery or someone else did the surgery, you know, that maybe were missed. Um, but you don't say it like that, obviously, but that's always, that's always a tough conversation because they're like, did, did the surgery cause this? You know, that's always the, the, the next question and it's going to be on their mind. Absolutely. I've even had patients where I've say done a superficial keratectomy and they're so happy after they defer cataract surgery for two years. Well, another thing that comes to mind you know, we have all of these new lenses, right? The small aperture lens, the light adjustable lens, enhanced monofocal. And I think they can all, you know, play a role in patients with, you know, irregular corneas if they're the appropriate candidate. Joaquin, ha- have you used any of these technologies in such patients? And have you had an interesting case that comes to mind where the patient was really happy with the outcome? Yeah, definitely. I have. Um, and, you know, it started, we didn't have like a few years ago, we didn't have even LAL, uh, you know, we had like basically monofocals, torx, and we had like multifocals, EDOS, right? And then you really are limited. You try to improve ocular surface and do everything else. And sometimes you're successful. A lot of times you are, but sometimes there's just something there. The patient has 16 cut RK, um, you know, corneal scarring. There's, there's not much you can do there, right? So, you know, so then the LAL came out and that's been really nice because at least you can um, get you can take corneas that are going to be difficult to predict the refractive outcome and you can really minimize that refractive outcome and have confidence you're going to hit the target. Uh, but then, you know, that has some limitations too, right? Cause it, it doesn't really address irregular stigmatism. So, you know, you have to be careful if, the, if it's like 16 cut RK or more, or if there's a component of the stigmatism that's pretty irregular. And like I talk about in the article, there are ways to figure this out, you know, pretty simple ways that everyone, should understand looking at the manifest refraction versus like a hard contact lens refraction, looking at topography and all these types of things. Um, but then, you know, then the ICA came out, um, which has been really great for, for patients that have a lot of irregular stigmatism. I think that's been great because now we have a premium surgical option for irregular stigmatism that's lens-based. You know, we've had topo guide LASIK and these other things, but, um, but a lens-based option, it's pretty awesome. Um, so I had the first patient I did, it was someone that, you know, talk about a refractive mindset. He, he made me have a refractive mindset because he didn't want surgery until the ICA came out. He is, he was, he was very well researched. You know, we got the lens, patient was ecstatic. We called him up and he had a 16 cut RK. Um, uh, luckily he had, uh, done a pilocarpine. What do you even call it a challenge? Cause he was just living with pilocarpine. He was just using pilocarpine regularly and it was helping him. So that was awesome. First patient to do this on. Um, I did it bilaterally, um, which I know that um, the indication is actually in one eye. uh, But I think in this case, the bilateral uh, approach would have been ideal for him. 
at the time. That's what I thought. And I was right because he, uh, basically the way I approached the case was I, um, I targeted about negative 0.75 in the dominant eye, which I find is a really good target if you're kind of looking for good distance vision, uh, because, you know, that's kind of the midpoint of the midpoint refraction because the pinhole will give you about 1.5 diopters uh, of range. So if you target that negative 0.75, you get on the one end, you get emetropia, uh, you get the, uh, like the Plano 2020, and then you can go all the way to about negative 1.5 um, for near. So you can do that. And then if you want any more near than that, then you can target more near like a minus 1.5 or so in the non-dominant. So that's exactly what I did for him. Um, and, uh, you know, within a few days, I mean, I think I saw him day four after both eyes were done. He's 2020 J1. Um, and, um, you know, it's been, it's been pretty awesome that, that I could get him like that. And then another patient I recently also did was with the IC8 was a, a patient with scarring from um, herpetic disease in one eye. So I did the IC8 in that eye. Um, and then I did like a EDOF in the other eye and that patient's doing really well too. So, um, I've been really happy with the lens, you know, you have to obviously use like, if you have like, a a lot of RK patients, which you might with like 16 cut, you have to go through the spiral for that. That's the only thing just, you know, that's a little different and it's a, cause it's about a three, 3.2 millimeter, 3.0 about millimeter incisions. It's a little bigger incision and you may have to go through the spiral depending on the case. Um, but other than that, it's pretty straightforward. So I liked it. Have you guys had any experience with it yet? I haven't yet. No, that's a great case. So the patient was using Pilo to basically induce the pinhole effect on his own to reduce his own irregular astigmatism in your case. Yeah, he was, he was really smart. That's guy neat. Really, really <laughs> smart well guy. I learned from him. I was like, yeah. Yeah. So he was the one that got me to, um, to get you know, to, to get the lens in my hands. So sometimes our patients are the ones that teach us stuff too, you know? That's so true. Are you going to do a PILO uh, trial before you place an ICA in other patients? I think I am, you know, I think, I think, it that, makes sense. Um, yeah. I think that if I'm ever going to do a bilateral, uh, you worry about, it's a pinhole. So you worry about uh, light, not enough light getting to the retina. Um, so I think that in those cases, I think a pilot challenge might be really nice. Um, I think if you do it in one eye, maybe it's not necessary, but I think for bilateral, I think I'm going to do it every case. Yeah. And of course, like using these in this, in these, using the IC8 in these types of eyes is obviously off label. So if you can show the patient what they may potentially, you know, experience with the lens, I think that's important because they're paying out of pocket. You you're, you have to set the expectations, right? Sometimes we're not sure exactly what the outcome will be. And I think that is an important conversation to navigate with the patients because sometimes we may not achieve the outcome that we were looking for. So being able to think about a plan B and a plan C and what that'll look like is, is of course, important. I had a very successful um, experience with the IC8 in a 16-cut RK. He was my first patient. And he actually had a really nice, you know, central myopic flattening with very little astigmatism. So he was kind of a nice candidate because I was like, I don't know if I want to push the limits beyond a diopter and a half of astigmatism that you measure. Um, but he was J2 um, and 20-30 distance and he's thrilled. And I'm actually going to do the same thing um, for his other eye. And so he's very motivated to have the, the small aperture in both eyes. 
So things to consider. I mean, I think it's been a really wonderful technology to add to the armamentarium, you know, in addition to the others that we have. Mina, any cases that come to mind for you or... Uh, I haven't had an opportunity yet to get an IC8 case, but I'm really inspired <laughs> after talking with, with both of you. Um, you know, I am also hoping maybe soon to have some access to the light adjustable lenses. But um, but again, that's something that's not in my toolbox right now. And so it's, um, I'm kind of, I, you know, have all access to the lenses, but those newer technologies are something that some patients are coming in asking about now. So I think that we all have to have this refractive mindset and if there's a patient that's wanting these technologies and I personally not able to offer them. I will refer a patient out, you know, for these because um, I want to be able to meet the patient's goals and know that if it's a lens that would suit them better that I can't offer or a technology that they want. Um, I think that it's really, we really should be referring out to get these patients in the right hands. And so I think knowing our own limitations and knowing when to send out is is important. Um, I have some patients that are sent over to me from surgeons that are not offering multifocal lenses. Um, they may not feel comfortable in offering some of the trifocal or even the extended depth of focus lenses. So I'm happy to fill in that void for some of my colleagues as well. Um, so just knowing what works in your hands, what you're able to um, offer confidently, like Joaquin said, you know, with your own skill set and refer out if it's something that, that you don't have available to offer. I think it's important to have an understanding of that. And one thing that um, I was thinking back to, you know, things we've discussed in these, in these articles in this whole section, one thing that it's, you don't have to have every piece of technology as you guys, you know, you know, because the idea is to try to work with what you have and try to really figure out kind of algorithms to, to, in your mind to classify, you know, which patients are going to do better with what. And one thing that's often overlooked too, is just like, if you have to stick to monofocals or torques and that's fine, you know, because it's just not smart to do a, a light splitting lens. It's like, you could do like a mini monovision, you know, blended, blended vision approach, get, do a contact lens trial with it. Um, and it's amazing. You know, you can have the refractive mindset working with tools like that. And it's amazing what, what you can achieve just from playing around with, with different, um, I guess, different degrees of blended vision, um, you know, and, uh, and then there's really a continuum with these different EDOFs and multifocals, I'm sure as, as, as I'm sure Mina's very aware of, like, and, and some of them are, seem to be a little more forgiving than others, you know, so there's, there's still, there's still so many, uh, we're so lucky to just have so many possibilities. Absolutely. And probably more to come in the next several years. That's, what's really exciting. Well, I want to shift gears to Mina's article. You know, Mina, I loved your article on kind of optimizing the surface, especially in our dry eye disease patients um, before surgery and then thinking about it after. Um, you know, just talk us through, you know, what are the key signs that you're kind of looking for when you're seeing these patients in clinic? Like, when do you decide you need to treat them? And when are scenarios where you say, maybe we don't have to think about, you know, the ocular surface findings that we're seeing? How do you, how do you think through that patient in your clinic? Yeah. So those are some great questions. So the first thing, it really starts even before I even see the patient. And so my technicians are used to working up cataract patients, cornea patients, and a lot of dry eye patients as well. And so a patient may be coming in for a cataract consult, but they're complaining of fluctuations in their vision. 
Um, they're complaining of grittiness, foreign body sensation, maybe a lot of epiphora as well. And the technicians know before the patient even sees me or before they get any lens measurements or anything uh, that it may turn into a, a dry eye consult. And they may have me, I may see the patient first before they go for any of their testing to check their ocular surface before they uh, get their Pentacam and their OCT and go down that whole path. Um, it may end up turning into a dry eye consult. And so the techs have a high index of suspicion just based on symptoms that they're all very familiar with um, to, to have that initial screen. And they may give the patient a speed to a validated dry eye questionnaire at that point and uh, have them work on that um, while I, uh, you know, before I even see them. So I think that's the first thing, just having everyone on your team having a high index of suspicion that dry eye is everywhere, as we all know. And if you don't pick it up in the pre-op period, then it's a post-operative problem or complication. You know, that's how a lot of patients can view it. I see a lot of patients that are referred to me for a dry eye consult after cataract surgery, and they are convinced that their cataract surgeon caused their dry eye. So if it's not a, a discussion and a workup beforehand, you know, you don't want to be the person giving them a new problem. You're there to help them with their problem, with their vision problem, with their cataract, um, but it has to be addressed. And so, uh, so that's the first thing, just making sure that we're getting a thorough history, having high index of suspicion before the ophthalmologist even sees the patient. And then once I see the patient, I, of course, do corneal staining and check their lid position. Um, looking for keratopathy, especially not only SPK, not only superficial punctate stain, but also lumps and bumps, nodules, panis, uh, atrigia, a, um, just looking for anything that could be affecting ocular surface, either measurement-wise or uh, leading to discomfort or, or worsening post-operative symptoms. And so um, on exam, looking at the lids is also so critical um, actually pressing on my, my Bohmian glands, looking for sleeves or collarettes at the bases of the lashes, looking at lid margin telangiectasia or inflammation. Um, the tear breakup time is a really great measure of the health of those meibomian glands. If their tears are evaporating within seconds, they're of course going to have blurry vision and fluctuations. And that may be contributing to a lot of their visual complaints more so than their trace NS cataract. And so figuring out what's from the surface and what's from the cataract and weeding out uh, what's actually going on, causing their vision complaints. Uh, so history, getting some uh, a questionnaire is often helpful too. And then a really focused slit lamp exam, uh, even before getting any, any measurements is, is really important. Absolutely. I mean, even for me, my technicians will come up to me and say, Hey doc, like I had to put a bunch of artificial tears in in order to get good biometry or good topography. And I'm like, okay, noted, because I'm pretty sure they're going to have a very unstable surface. And if I can get the printouts of kind of the smudge circles that you get with your biometers or you see mm -hmm. the description yeah. of the Posito disc Myers on topography, that's so illustrative for the patient. I'm like, look at this. Like I can't get nice, perfect circles or I can't get, you know, crisp images that can explain why you can't see crisp when you're trying to, you know, blink and accommodate for that. So I think that's so key, getting buy-in from your staff to help. I love you know, that. Help you yeah. 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 Or, so or when they're getting refracted and the technician will say, this was a really tough refraction. I ha kept having to have them blink. I put in some artificial tears. They can pick that up, you know, pretty quickly. 
you know, if it's a really tedious refraction and they're just kind of chasing the whole, the whole four after um, with the refraction, you know, that's a huge clue. So patients will come in and they'll be like, I want cataract surgery tomorrow. And you see a ton of dry eye. I, there's so much now available in the dry eye space. How, how do you decide what you're going to start? Like, what are some of your, you know, top treatments that you think have a good onset in terms of efficacy to help patients rehabilitate their surface? So I really have two goals. I want their cornea clear so that I have a nice smooth surface and I know I can get accurate measurements. And the second thing is a comfortable post-operative course. If they're already really symptomatic with dry eye, I'm going to be, you know, potentially putting drops with preservatives on their surface for, you know, weeks at a time. Um, you know, I definitely can make their symptoms a lot worse and give them a new problem, which I don't want to do. Um, so I want something that's going to be quick and onset. It's going to be tolerable for them as well. Um, so I can get them to the point of measurements and, and cataract surgery as soon as I can. Um, so a lot of it depends on what's going on. As we know, most dry eye disease is mixed mechanism. You know, there's very pure, uh, there's very few purely aqueous deficient patients that are out there. There's very few that are purely MGD just alone. You know, there's a lot of mixed mechanism there. So, but at the key, at the root of all of it is a loss of tear film homeostasis. So something is off. And when there is this loss of homeostasis, we know there's increase in cytokines and there's an increase in inflammation. And so the root of the key really to treat dry eye is to restore this homeostasis and to fight inflammation. Um, I often get an MMP9 uh, test in my clinic for patients that are coming in for a dry eye consult or these cataract consults that turn into dry eye consults. My technicians will, will get an MMP9 test looking for this common marker of inflammation as well. Uh, it's helpful not only as a objective measurement for me, but also to explain dry eye and, and inflammation to my patients when I'm talking about it with them. Um, and so there are a lot of drop options. There's even a nasal spray option, but I'm looking to see what's going on with the lids, what's going on with their uh, tear film, what's going on with their tear evaporation rate, and make a decision based on that. Steroids, because inflammation is really at the key, a course of steroids can be really helpful, um, but they're not going to be a good long-term option. And so, you know, with steroids, I'll often do a, a mild a course of a lodopredinol drop for a few weeks, and I know that that will help improve the cornea, get inflammation down quicker. But as I tell my patients, as we all know, you know, you can't be on steroids forever. Um, they'll make the cataract worse, which is fine. We're going to address that anyways, but they can induce glaucoma at the same time. And that's a blinding disease. So we don't want to treat your surface problem, give you a, a, a long-term uh, vision, uh, lead to vision loss long-term. So they all get that. So I'll start steroids, but at the same time, start them on something that will be safer for long-term use. Um, with the drops that we have on the market, we have Restasis, we have Zyger, we have Sequa. Um, we have these options that each have their pros and cons. Um, when I have all the options based on insurance coverage and all of that, um, I find that Sequa does best in my hands just because I know that within a month of being on it in the studies, we see that there is total clearing of the cornea around that one month point. So I'm comfortable starting patients on that. I also find it has the best tolerability um, compared to the other drops. And so that is a drop I'll commonly go to. Um, there are some patients that can't tolerate any drops on their ocular surface. They may have trouble tolerating even artificial tears. 
And so fortunately, we have uh, the uh, Renaclean nasal spray Tirvaya available, uh, which is a nice option for those patients with a twice a day nasal spray uh, that increases tear production and increases Schirmer scores. Um, that's really a great option for those patients with tolerability issues. And also around month one, um, there were significant improvements in keratopathy seen in their clinical studies too. So, um, so those are two that I'm kind of leaning towards when I have those mixed mechanism patients that we need an increase in their tear production, but also some anti-inflammatory benefit at the same time. Um, And then, like I said, most patients do have mixed mechanism dry eye. So if you're ignoring the lids, you're really not treating a major part of their dry eye. And so um, lid inflammation may be helped with some of the anti-inflammatory drops as well. But for my ocular rosacea patients, I may have to go and use some other tools in my toolbox, like topical or oral azithromycin or oral doxycycline. Or I find intense pulse light therapy to be very helpful in my clinic for these patients when we have all of that very active lid telangiectasia that we need to address to improve the quality of the myobum. And then for patients with stubborn clogged glands that aren't improving with conservative measures, or even for those patients that are getting improvement but want something quicker, um, heated meibomian gland expression can be very helpful. So uh, in my clinic, I use the tear care device and find that to be very well tolerated by patients and also able to get them to that improvement in their, in their myobum and improving their tear breakup score um, quicker than just a home care regimen alone. So it's really a matter of looking to see where are they at on the spectrum of aqueous deficient and uh, evaporative dry eye and tailoring the therapies um, along the way. Yeah, it's a great overview of, of the different options. And I agree, it's so customized based on patient's presentation and what you're seeing on their clinical exam. You know, Joaquin, when you start to optimize the surface, do you kind of have a timeline after which you bring the patient back and check in with them before proceeding with surgery? You know, how do you, how do you time that for patients? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I, I have a kind of like a go-to that I use and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but at least it's, I think it's important to have a, kind of a default that everyone's on board with. I think it helps with efficiency because it, it can be really, it can, it can really bog your clinic if you, you know, pretty soon you have a cataract console that turns into dry management for like six months, right? And that's, <laughs> that can be tough. Um, and sometimes you have to, but, but a lot of times what I do is I tell the patient to come back in two to three weeks for repeat measurements. So I agree with Mina, I add a steroid. I think that's so important most of the time, right? Not all the time, but if I'm having a patient come back for measurements, it probably means I'm adding a steroid because I want, I want a really quick improvement. Um, and I'm probably doing punctal plugs and I'm probably doing, uh, I'm looking at their lids, looking for exposure, all, 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 looking for, you know, lid disease, all the things that, that Mina talked about. Um, but yeah, two to three weeks, I, I have them repeat the measurements. And often what I find is that if you look at the IOL master, whatever biometer, you'll find sometimes the things, uh, the measurements radically change. The lens power is different. The astigmatism has gone down. Um, I look at the Pentacam too. I repeat the Pentacam. Um, and, and then if there's, sometimes if it's, if it wasn't, if it wasn't too severe and we have a good dry plan in place and the measurements look better, I might just keep that visit as a tech only. I might even just say we're good to go. It also depends on what technology I'm using, right? If I'm, if I'm going for like a multifocal, like I'm going to be a little more, uh, hands-on there and I'm going to take a look at that patient. But if it's more of just like a, like I'm optimizing for like a toric, 
you know, then I'm a little more lenient, right? So it just kind of depends on, on the technology or even LAL, I'm a little more lenient, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I would say two or three weeks. Cause then at that point, you know, some of the, the latest studies with Sequ even Sequa, you know, show that after two weeks, there is an improvement, um, in the corneal staining, which is really my, my biggest priority pre-op is to improve the corneal staining and tear breakup time. Cause that's, uh, that's part of the visual axis, right? So, um, so two or three weeks. And then I look if, if things aren't adding up or if I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm going for something pretty aggressive in terms of surgical treatment with like multifocals or, or the patient had really severe disease, then I'm definitely going to take a look again, um, you know, two to three weeks later. And it may be the case that I make a determination. I kind of make a determination after two or three weeks, you know, if I can't get them significantly better in two to three weeks, that means a problem. I probably have to reassess how aggressive I'm going to be in terms of technologies. Um, so I may, you know, because what are the chance you may get them, you know, you may work your butt off for like a better term for two months with the patient to try to get them really optimized and you get it after two months. But what's, who's to say that that patient's going to stay on all that stuff? hundred percent. I feel like you need to get buy-in from the patient to sustain the regimen that you've started pre-op post-op because more likely than not, they will have dry eye after surgery whether or not they started with it, but if certainly if they started with it, I promise them they'll have some dryness after. So it's it's nice for them to have a regimen. So if I'm starting a steroid, I like to start something that's more long-term therapy that's steroid sparing, because then I can say, continue that after. You're, you're already used to doing this before. We want you to have that same quality of vision after. And I think patients understand that. They think of it more like a chronic process rather than just, you know, one little metric that we're trying to perfect prior to surgery. Um, but I see plenty of patients who come afterwards, they've had, you know, premium lens technologies put in and they have a terrible ocular surface and it drives them crazy because they just don't have that quality of vision. And some of those dyscotopsia symptoms are exacerbated by the fact that they have keratopathy in an unstable tear film. So and in that, in that same light, as you were saying, like, you know, if you're doing your own management post-op, then it's easy because you know you're going to switch over to CEQA or whatever from the steroid and you have your... But if you're co-managing a lot, in my practice, we do co-manage a lot, then you have to have um, everyone's buy-in, not just the technicians, but also the co-managing optometrists. And you have to either, you know, uh, discuss these things with them beforehand. Um, and you can even write in your notes like, okay, after, you know, steroid, make sure patient continues on... XYZ treatment, you know, post-op. Sometimes you really have to be explicit because, um, you know, not everyone is as uh, enthusiastic about dry treatment, you know, and I think that sometimes you catch these patients like, you know, three months post-op or something, you're like, what happened? You're not doing any dry treatment anymore. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that's just another thing I've, I've kind of learned. I, I totally get needing to um, be efficient, you know, in our in our clinics and optimizing dry eye within a certain amount of time so we can get to those cataracts sooner. But I do have to say some of my most gratifying patients have been patients that have had really horrible ocular surfaces that we've worked together for months, you know, six months, gone through four sessions of IPL, you know, done really worked really hard to, to improve their candidacy for lenses. Um, and have done really well with multifocal lenses. And some patients, if that's the technology that they really want, um, you know, I'll give it my all to try to make their surface as pristine as I can. And if I may not get there, and you know, I, I set that realistic expectation from the get-go, 
But for those patients where I'm able to, to get to that endpoint, improve their surface and their candidate for, uh, for a multifocal lens platform, those are really gratifying cases uh, at the end of the day. Mina, what are some of the new you know, therapies that are in the pipeline or currently almost available that you're excited about for ocular surface disease treatment? Yeah, so it was an exciting summer, early fall here for dry eyes. So uh, Xdemvi was approved in late July uh, for Demodex blepharitis, the only FDA-approved treatment for it now, which is exciting. I used to just depend on tea tree wipes and lid hygiene and maybe offer a blepex here and there, you know, to to just clean the lid margins. But now that we have something that actually kills uh, the mites themselves, um, I'm very uh, encouraged. I've started several patients on it, haven't seen anyone back yet after the six-week course, so still waiting to see, um, but haven't gotten too many messages about tolerability issues yet, which is good, <laughs> and, um, and my patients have been able to, to get it, which is the other thing that's good for any new you know, drop that's out there, knowing that we can get it in our patients' hands is also important. Um, but um, in the data, there was an improvement in not only mite eradication, but also the cholerets, even without any lid hygiene on board, without using any of these tea tree wipes or scrubs. And eyelid redness also improved, and it was sustained out to a year. So that was very encouraging. So um, to know that there's something we can do to target lid inflammation more, that's something exciting um, for me from the dry eye perspective. And then the other newcomer on the block, Mybo, um, is is uh, really targets evaporative dry eye um, by having this uh, interface between the air and, and lipid and decreasing tear evaporation. And in their trials, I was impressed that the cornea was clear by month one um, with QID dosing of this molecule. And so um, I haven't seen, I've ordered it just a couple times and haven't seen any patients back. It's been available just a couple weeks, I believe now. Um, so, uh, so it's brand new, um, and have been able to get, get it in the hands of a few patients here too. So looking forward to seeing how that changes my management of, of dry eye, um, clear cornea in a month. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty great for these really tough eyes that can take a while to get there. Um, and so I think that would be a great option for evaporative, uh, for evaporative disease as well. Have you guys had any experience yet with, with either? Yeah, I, like you, have prescribed, you know, several prescriptions for Xdemvi and about two or three for Mybo. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they do. I'm, I'm asking them, you know, always when I, I prescribe something newer to my patients, I always tell them, like, I'm learning from you. So please give, like, please give me feedback. Like, tell me how it feels. Tell me what you're noticing, like adverse events. I really like to follow them up, follow and see them and see what are their lids looking like? What is their tear breakup time looking like? And I learned so much about how to utilize that, you know, treatment in my practice. So looking forward for, to them to come back, <laughs> hopefully in my court. Yeah, I'm on the same boat. So yeah, prescribed to a few patients, both of those. Um, I guess it'll just be interesting, you know, as we're talking about the pre-op setting, just how do these work into that. And I haven't figured that out yet. Um, we're just, I'm just trying to see how they work first. Um, I could see potentially my book, my book having, um, you know, a role pre-op if, if the tier breakup time is like a big issue for, for measurements, it'd be interesting to see how it could improve, you know, measurements. Um, the extent um, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think 
I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I think blephritis is more, when you were talking about, Mina, those, the two reasons why you treat dry and you were saying that one of them's for the cornea, one of them's for the uh, symptoms, basically. Um, you know, the, I think it takes pretty bad blephritis to really affect the central cornea. You know, most of the time it's more like inferior, but like so your run of the mill blephritis, I feel like it's usually more represented in symptoms like burning and things like this. So I wonder if I'll be using that one as much pre-op, but maybe it might be one of those things that I could start pre-op in the bad cases and keep them on afterwards too. What are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, I think I would think of it pretty similar, you know, really to help with the symptoms. I want to do something, get them on some lid hygiene compress, um, maybe a procedure, heated meibomian gland, you know, expression, something to deal with the obstruction and to deal with the inflammation. And so if their inflammation is really coming from all these cholerets and from uh, Demdex itself, then it makes sense that doing XDEMB is going to improve their lid margin, improve their meibom, improve their tear breakup. But I think it would be a longer process than, you know, starting a, a steroid. So, um, but it's nice that we have something that's a six-week set course to target their Demdex instead of saying, okay, here are tea tree oil wipes that you'll be on forever or, you know, a year or two. So I really like that there's that finite amount of time uh, with XMB and with Demdex treatment now. And so I think that that's you know, a different way to, to think about it, which is exciting. Yeah. Along that same vein, I was thinking about, you know, what is the, like, how long will I be keeping patients on my bow? I'm not sure. You know, like for, I was going to say the same thing for XDEMB. It's nice to tell patients, oh, six weeks, that's the life cycle of the mite. We're going to try to eradicate them, keep you more comfortable. And then let's see if we need to do another, you know, course. My bow will be more interesting to kind of see, is this more of one of those long-term therapies like we're doing with our topical immunomodulators and nasal sprays or something more short-term. So I think more to come and, and more to learn. But I agree with you. I think there are those patients with, you know, Demodex blepharitis that have a lot of, you know, follicular conjunctivitis, epiphora, kind of, you know, concomitant symptomatology from that lid inflammation. And I think they would really benefit from this um, because often these patients are tearing and blinking and they just can't quite you know, achieve that clarity of vision that they're looking for. So it'll, it'll be great to slowly implement into our practices. But I thought this was a great discussion. You know, thank you so much to both of you for wonderful contributions to the CRST issue and for such a great conversation. And I really hope all the listeners enjoy this. And if you all want to check out the full articles, um, don't forget to visit uh, www.crstoday.com and you'll access the entire September issue on cornea conscious surgery. Thank you all for tuning in. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.